The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in November 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we welcome Kevin Chamberlain. Hi, Kevin. Hi. Kevin, uh, currently starring in the Ritz on Broadway. He's been in Seussical, Dirty Blonde, Triumph of Love, Chicago, uh, My Favorite Year, quite a few off-Broadway shows, a lot of work on the West Coast in Los Angeles, and a lot of television and film work as well. And we're going to talk about your stage work primarily, Kevin. Kevin, you made your Broadway debut 22 years ago, not in the theater district, but at Herald Square, Macy's, at Santa Claus, at Macy's Department Store. Well, you did your research, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So here you are, 22 years later, your name is above the title of the Ritz. (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. And, you know, ironically enough, David Sedaris, who wrote Santaland Diaries, was an elf the same year I was Santa. (laughs) It was quite a cast. (laughs) Yes, it was. Well, you've you've come a long way, roughly uh, 20 blocks north to 54th Street from 34th to Studio 54. You play Gaetano Proclo in uh, in the Ritz, which is set in a gay bathhouse, and your your character is a straight guy who's hiding out from his brother-in-law, who's intent to kill him, and uh, uh, you don't really realize that you're in this gay bathhouse until all these things happen. He's kind of slow that way. (laughs) It slowly dawns on him. How did you get into the Ritz? Uh, I was doing a play called Dirty Blonde uh, down at New York Theater Workshop, which eventually went to Broadway, and uh, with Claudia Shear and Bob Stillman. And it was a big hit down at New York Theater Workshop, and everyone and their mother was coming to see it, including Joe Mantello. He came one night, and he had just done a reading of uh, that the Roundabout had uh, sponsored of the Ritz with Jason Alexander and Rosie Perez. And that was in 99, and it didn't really work. They weren't really happy with it. And he came to see Dirty Blonde, and he was like, Kevin would be perfect for Gaetano. That's, that would make it work. So he came backstage, and he said, I want to do the show with you and Rosie. And uh, he said, Some, someday, you know, I, I can't say when, but uh, we will get this production done. Seven years later, here we are. And what what did it take over those seven years? Does he talked about why it took so long? To well, make it Wicked, happen? Wicked was all Got in the middle of way. that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was three years of his life. Uh, and during Wicked, uh, he got many other offers, and so you know he's lining up jobs two or three years down the line. Um, and one show fell through. I think Blackbird with Jeff Daniel that he was doing was supposed to transfer, and it didn't, and so that ended up. Uh, creating a hole in his schedule, and he said, now I can do the Ritz. And he called us both, and we were luckily both available. And you were familiar with the work because you had seen the the, the movie version of it starring Jack Weston in the role that that you play. I was kind of obsessed with the movie Uh for a long time and uh, and the play. I had a really good friend who did a a community theater production of it that I saw, and it was sort of infamous because it's a multi-level set, and he was playing Gaetano, and uh, when the chubby chaser jumped on him and they fell onto the bed, the bed collapsed and he (laughs) fell eight feet off the stage. And that show really, you know, <laughs> is infamous in our circle of friends because he, he was in traction for about a year. And you said, um, and I want to do that? I want to do that role. <laughs> but the first thing I said to the props people were, make sure that bed is really reinforced. Yeah, make it a strong one. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're, 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 you're in the show. Uh, does the movie in any way influence you in, in your own performance? Um, Terrence and I talked about the movie a lot. Um, he actually wasn't very happy with it, you know. And, in fact, if you look at the movie, there's a lot that's cut out at the end of it um, from the play. The big I want speech, for example, um, where you really find out um, uh, Gaetano's arc. And, uh, you know, he has this uh, – he's stifled with fear and because of this experience in the bathhouse and meeting all these uh, odd people who – and he, he's really built his confidence and, and all of a sudden that, that fear is lifted and he's actually able to say what he wants for the first time to his wife. And they cut that out of the movie. Um, uh, I, I don't know why, whether it was a, a length thing. Terrence didn't even remember why they cut it out. But um, we wanted it to be a farce with heart. And the movie – was basically just a farce, and it didn't really have an arc 
to the the lead character, and uh, so that's really what it, what we wanted to give it. Well, Terrence has said that he has kept the script essentially intact from 1975. Maybe a couple lines dropped here or there, but basically the same play that he wrote in 1975 is what you are performing. Yes, yeah, but no, that was not what the movie was. In fact, we've actually stolen a couple things from the movie that um, he had rewritten and some cuts that he made. The period being retained as 75 certainly is a play that is set in a particular milieu, particular milieu, a particular time in gay life. Were there discussions of understanding what a place like this was at that time? Because it is now a time capsule. It is. These places don't exist anymore. Um, there's a great movie called A Night at the Baths that we all watched um, that was shot at the Continental Baths, uh, which the play is based on which was in the basement of the Ansonia Hotel. I don't know if a lot of people uh, in this new generation realize that. but And then it ended up uh, turning into Plato's Retreat, a heterosexual uh, bathhouse. Uh, and it, uh, it, I think w- w- when Terrence talked to us the first day, he said, I wrote this at a time of incredible happiness and celebration. People were celebrating sexual freedom. And it was one of the happiest times of my life. And... He said, if you can bring that kind of joy uh, to this play, that's that's what uh, where my my mindset was. And, and I hope you can bring that. And then he left us. You know, he wasn't around for the uh, rehearsal process at all because his work was done. We weren't doing a new play, which had to be you know, rewritten every night. Well, that was some 32 years ago, and certainly in those years, the um, the way that gays are perceived in general has changed in our country, uh, and the whole, you know, gay life thing is much more acceptable now than it was back then. Sure. How do audiences today react to the gay themes as they were portrayed in 1975, which is basically what you're doing? Well, what's interesting is watching... You can imagine what the audience watching a play that takes place in 1975 in 1975 at a time they must have been – well, they were. Uh, Terrence has told us. They were shocked. People got up and left. Uh, people didn't – had no idea of this underground world. Um, and now people have a much more awareness of it and we're 32 years after – and it has this innocent nostalgia to it that it was like, wow, people actually walked out of this? It's so sweet and and simple. I mean, you don't even see two guys kiss in this show. There's nothing really that offensive. There's a couple lines about uh, Crisco oil party. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> So, so, so how, how, how do both straight and gay audiences, though, accept it nowadays? Because there's a lot of, I wouldn't say stereotypes, but a lot of the characters are what well, you would know, be a, stereotypes. I in guess. a farce, farces are written in primary colors. Uh-huh. Characters, you know, you have th- – this show is an equal opportunity offender. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's got the uh, classic Italian mobster. Mm-hmm. It's got the very flamboyant uh, uh, gay characters. It's got the, the screaming Italian uh, wife. And uh, and the the sweet innocent little henpecked husband, and so uh, Terrence wasn't wasn't interested was didn't want to wasn't worried about offending anyone. In fact, the producer of the original production of this really had no idea how subversive it was. Um, she was a European woman, and um, she just thought it was a charming little farce, and it was a shock to her when the first Broadway previews happened that people were actually aghast and didn't know what to make of it. Well, there's one point in the play where your character, who is a little bit slow on learning that he's in this gay bathhouse, that he suddenly realizes that these men are gay, and he is uh, talking to uh, the character that Brooks Ashmanskis plays called Chris, um, and he's referencing two of the other characters in the show, and your character says something to the effect of, what about Tiger and Duff? I thought they were normal, and the other character says they are normal. What sort of reaction does that line get nowadays? Because it must have been a very shocking line in 1975. Sure. Well, uh, my character represents the the majority of the audience, and... um, there's also a line right after that where he says, um, um, straight people don't like gay people. They never have. They never will. And my character actually starts to take offense at that, but then it sinks in and says, you know what? I think I think he's right. You know, subtextually, he's, he's, he's processing all that. And, and that's one of the, the first chinks in the armor that happens for this character is he starts to melt a little mm-hmm. and, uh, and realize that... Uh, he can actually have a conversation with someone that he doesn't 
particularly understand. I have to ask, because it's been commented on it a few times in print, you you don't come off immediately in, on meeting you as looking like a Gaetano Proclo. You seem a little more uh, middle American than that. Was that waspy. all an issue? <laughs> no, it's, it's actually never been brought up. I mean, there are lines actually in the play that say, uh, you know, he's not of the family. He's not one of us. Um so I, we kind of wrote it off as I'm Northern Italian. They're Southern Italian. <laughs> I got the blonde hair. <laughs> yeah, I don't really. But you know, Jack Weston was from Cleveland. He wasn't very uh, Italian looking either. It's not a ne- necessary uh, physical attribute for the role. But in fact, you may have touched on it just a moment ago, which is you represent the audience, exactly. and and if you were too much like the rest of the Italian family, perhaps you you wouldn't be as easy for people to associate right. with. He wouldn't be ostracized as much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's jump back and talk about how you got started in all of this. Uh, we, we've heard about the, the fami- famous uh, Macy's Santa Claus appearance, <laughs> but uh, how did you uh, get started in theater? Uh, I had a really active... I was your classic chubby kid, and I was looking for a way to, to stand out as a, as, a, as a little kid, and uh, I'd taken piano lessons and, and loved musicals, and, and I think, you know, going to see Oliver, the movie of Oliver, was very a uh, very seminal experience, and we had a really active community theater, and uh, I auditioned for uh, Tom Sawyer and got cast as Huck Finn down in South Jersey in a little town called Moorestown. And uh, and did roles like me and Peter Pan, the Cowardly Lion in Wizard of Oz, um, Laser Wolf and Fiddler on the Roof. And <laughs> but as a child, as a child, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, these were my you were the great twelve-year-old Laser yes, Wolf. Yes, yes, that was my leer as a child. <laughs> um, and uh, and then at uh, my high school had a really uh, great theater program, and I did roles like Billis in South Pacific and. Uh, I really got to hone my 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 acting skills then, and and I realized at a really young age I wanted to be an actor. And I I told my parents, and they were v- incredibly supportive. They saw the talent there, and they said, "Well, if you're going to be an actor, you should learn everything you can about acting. If you were going to be a plumber, you should know every pipe. So uh, go ev- go to school and and uh, get a degree." So. I applied to a lot of schools and got accepted at Rutgers, which my parents were thrilled about because it was the State University of New Jersey. And at the time, it was like $700 a semester. So I was the only one of my brothers who got through college debt-free. And I worked in the summers uh, uh, as a singing waiter, which was actually an incredible experience down at a place called The Show Place in Beach Haven on the Jersey Shore, next to Surflight Summer Theater, which actually Seth Rudetsky worked there and uh, a lot of Broadway people. Jimmy Brennan, and uh, I, I just saw tons of people go through there. So I was there for five years. But you were working next door to Surflight. You weren't yes. working at Surflight. Because I wanted to make money. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were paying their actors 35 a week. That's probably a great way to attempt to learn performance skills. Well, you're performing uh, in front of people three, four feet away mm-hmm. while they're eating ice cream. So you're competing <laughs> with a hot fudge sundae, and you got to be good to compete with hot fudge sundaes. It's a way of getting over one's nervousness of appearing in front of people. Exactly. That close yeah, to I've never been nervous since singing. Well, what was your first paying gig in a theater, not at a, at a restaurant? Uh, 1983, I got cast uh, in a summer stock tour uh, – a summer stock. Uh, there was Pocono, Bucks County, and Falmouth Playhouse. It was a, a three-theater circuit. That was their first year. That was equity. But this guy, Ralph Miller, who still owes me money, um, he was pulling some shady stuff and um, was hiring people with equity contracts and not paying them. So I ended up doing um, Guys and Dolls with Donna Pescow and Joey Travolta, <laughs> and uh, on a clear day with uh, Diana Canova. And then they, the equity pulled all the actors out. But that's how I got my equity card. And then I got um, a TheaterWorks USA tour when I graduated school and did that. It was written by Doug Cohen, wonderful So you were composer. still in school when you did the... Yeah, I did the summer stock. The summer stock. Yeah, oh. yeah. And, uh, and then uh, I, after I graduated, I got a job. I was doing... Do you remember the play The Foreigner by uh, Larry Shue? Sure, sure. That was being done a lot at that time, and uh, I was playing Ellard all over the country, you know, doing regional theaters. It was like, that was my next Lear role. And then uh, I uh, got uh, cast in uh, the McCarter Theater in the Resident Company, which was a dream come true. 
and I got to do a whole two two full seasons of of plays there, and that kind of training is invaluable. You cannot. It, it's a shame it really doesn't exist anymore. What what kind of shows were you in then? Um, I did um, Born Yesterday, Tartuffe, Christmas Carol, which you know. Death, Taxes, and A Christmas Carol, the three things certain in an actor's life. Uh, Sarcophagus, which was a play about Chernobyl. Uh, Dividing the Estate, we talked about. Um, and uh, well, there was a wonderful musical that we did a, um, a production of called Smoke on the Mountain, which ended up transferring to New York. And that was my first uh, gig in New York. It was a bluegrass gospel musical uh, written by Connie Ray and... Uh, musical direction by the Pumpways and Dinettes guys, um, Mark Hardwick and Mike Craver. And we played at the Lambs for a year. And I ended up getting an agent through that. And and, uh, and that really catapulted me into the New York theater scene. That was an off-Broadway show, of course. Right. Can you tell us a little more about what, what your part in that was? What, what introduced you to New York? <laughs> uh, I was the I was Reverend Mervyn Oglethorpe, and I was a Southern Baptist. It was brilliant. It was it was sort of real satire on um, a Baptist revival meeting from the 1930s, and I'd have lines like, um, it was a brilliant. It, it's actually uh, one of the most produced musicals in America. Uh, it, down below the Mason Dixon line, really? everyone does it, and there's actually three of them now. There's three. There's two sequels. Um, uh, he he had lines like, uh, "My mama wanted me to thank you so much for your prayers on her cyst. She called me on the telephone Tuesday night to say it just fell off in her hand. Praise the Lord! <laughs> you know, <laughs> really great stuff like that. Though there was a band on stage, a family of uh, bluegrass singers, and it was it was a wonderful little show. And we had a big church audience and. Uh, church groups would come up and see it and uh, at the beautiful Lambs Theater, which uh, I don't know if it's even still in existence anymore, if they're, if they're doing shows there. I don't know. I, I, I don't believe it is. I think I read something about it closing down. Mm, it's just sad. Recently, it used know. to be the, the Lambs Club, which was, mm-hmm. you know, Irving Berlin was a member of that and George M. Cohen. It was a beautiful theater. So when did Broadway beckon? Um, I got, I auditioned for a workshop of my favorite year. Uh, that Steve Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens had written uh, based on the movie and uh, got cast in the chorus and it started out a gypsy in, in the chorus at, down at Lincoln Center and uh, we did the workshop of that and then I did the full production and when when was this yeah, time 93 93 yeah and then uh, Lincoln Center liked me a lot and cast me in Abe Lincoln in Illinois the next year which uh, was a unique experience because there's 50 people in the cast and it was 3 hours and 35 minutes long and I was on at 20 after 8 and 20 after 11. <laughs> I had three hours off. And what did you do in and between? <laughs> I actually, a couple of nights, I had a friend in a show down at the duplex, and I snuck out one night <laughs> and took the subway down, saw him at a show, and made it back with an hour to spare. <laughs> I say why stage managers get gray. <laughs> yeah. You just hope the subway doesn't get stuck. <laughs> Someone ratted on me, and the next day there was a sign up on the board, no actors are allowed to leave the theater. So you read a few good books during that <laughs> yes, show, I guess. a lot. We played ping pong a lot really but we had a great cast oh there's you know sam waterston and uh led the cast and it was it was a great group well we moved quickly past my favorite year and i want to jump back to that because i've i've read some of other interviews with you and you've talked about the workshop process which was extensive for that and and workshops come up a few times and i will come up a few times as we talk to you so you talk a little about workshopping that show and its transition to the stage Workshops are incredibly dangerous um, because the audience will create the perfect production in their head. They will design the costumes. They will create the sets while they're watching it in this bare-bones rehearsal room. And uh, it it's great for the writers because they get to hear it in front of an audience for the first time. But anyone who sees a workshop and then sees the, the uh, first physical production is bound to be disappointed. And including the creators, and and so it it, it creates a, a sort of a kettle of too many cooks uh, that are going. Well, this is how I saw it, and this is how I saw it. Uh, it's it's very dangerous. So I think if I were to produce a musical, I would just put it up out of town, way out of town, <laughs> in a small physical production, and then and build it from there because it's it, it is incredibly dangerous. Uh, on the other hand. Uh, the it, it is invaluable to the writers, and it's wonderful for actors when they can uh, create a role in a safe environment. 
and and actually uh, profit share in the long run with these new Broadway workshop contracts um, because our work um, informs the playwrights a lot of times, and I, I believe that the actors should share in the profits. Can you explain that a little bit more, what, what that's all about, how that works? Ever since a chorus line, uh, the chorus line cast members uh, sued the original producers, saying their lives were up on stage and um, uh, that they should uh, share in the profits. And they won, and so they share in, like, a, a point. Um, and I've done a couple like Marie Christine. <laughs> that made a lot of money. <laughs> I have a point in that, the uh, or you know, an eighth of a point. And uh, so uh, they they try to get around it a lot of the times. But uh, like they'll do workshops in Canada, for example. That's what they did with Susical to get uh, away with not having to give us uh, any profit share. Uh, they uh, Garth Drabinsky at the time, who was running uh, Clear Channel. He uh, decided to bring us all up there and give us our Canadian equity cards and pay for our equity cards instead of profit share. <laughs> this is mad big. So this is typical now of, of all shows that are developing workshops that yeah. by, by actors' equity contract, the actors participate as creative yes. people. Yes. Yeah. They share one point. Interesting. Interesting. With my favorite year, was that a case of the imaginary show – <laughs> that was seen in workshop didn't quite make it to the stage. Yeah, you think? everyone came and loved it, went nuts over it. And um, the original workshop was Victor Garber, and then he couldn't do it, do the the full production, and they recast him with Tim Curry, which um, I think um, uh, it, it was a different interpretation. And I, I think uh, I think ultimately uh, Victor was much more Alan Swanish. You know, than than Tim, but um, it got so rewritten, and there were so many cooks coming in. They had show doctors coming in constantly. Everyone from Neil Simon to Wendy Wasserstein, you know, to do book rewrites and and tweaks here. Um, but I, I saw a production of it recently out in L.A. They did a, a concert version of it, and the score still holds up. It's a, it's a fantastic score. I think it's it's ripe for an encore's. Uh, production very soon. I think well, en enough time has passed. Speaking of Encore's productions, they did a production of Chicago about 11 years ago, which is still running on Broadway in revival now, after five Encore's performances, and you at one point played Amos Hart in the revival of Chicago. Yeah, I thought, you know, it's it's actually the law now that all actors have to do Chicago before you they do, die. <laughs> you, you have to do law and order for television, you have yes. to do Chicago for an act. <laughs> and what's nice is that you can pop in for three months. I live in Los Angeles now, so I, I, I enjoy being able to do a show just for a short amount of time so I can get back and make some money. <laughs> now, when you were in the show, who was opposite you? Who else Usher, was mm -hmm. the rock star, which... Uh, Playing Billy Flynn. There was a, quite a, a, a wild uh, young girl demographic in the audience. <laughs> they were screaming every night. And uh, the wonderful Rita Wilson, Tom Hanks' wife. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so, uh, but a after, because of uh, my favorite year... Uh, Stephen Lynn remembered me and uh, cast me in the workshop, the first workshops of Susical, which also suffered from, you know, the workshop syndrome. Well, can you let's go right to Susical then? We're, we'll come back to Triumph of Love because we were skipping past <laughs> that. But um, I remember hearing out of that Toronto workshop, I had a friend who came out of that and said it's going to be the next Lion King. It was it was quite remarkable. What was the experience in the workshop in Chicago. Let's not talk about what happened after. It was in Toronto, actually. Uh, the, oh, I'm sorry. The, the workshop, yeah. yeah. Um, it was uh, one of those... Uh, uh, if you remember Paul Sills' story theater, it was very much like that, where, you know, if you have a, a, a little lake, you bring out a piece of blue fabric and you put it down and that becomes the lake. Uh, wonderful little inventive uh, things. It was all about the imagination, uh, we just had some scaffolding. Everyone wore sweatpants, colored sweatpants. I was in gray sweatpants and a gray shirt. Playing Horton the Elephant. Playing Horton the Elephant. And everything was very representational. And the emphasis was on the actor and telling the story. And that's what I thought we would be doing uh, when we came to New York. Um, what became the design concept was more of a Cirque du Soleil kind of Las Vegas thing 
that blew up into a ten, twelve million dollar production, and it just uh, suffocated the show, um, and and really distracted everyone from the actual work that needed to be done, which was basically just trimming the story. Which Theater Works USA, ironically finally did with Stephen Lynn this past summer. They performed it down at the Lucille Hortel, uh, uh, 80 minutes long, uh, which is what it should have been done with, and it should have been done, and, it, and they did it as story theater. And, uh, and it was an, an incredible success and, and the best-selling show for TheaterWorks USA that they've ever had. And a hugely popular show across the country. It's done. It's the most produced musical in America. Yeah, I went to see it at my high school, ironically <laughs> enough. It was a very moving experience. <laughs> In Boston, the show was much scrutinized because it didn't just come directly to New York. Can you talk about being in a show that was going through a lot of changes? Um, it was unique because it was the first show that um, suffered from Internet um, gossip. The The new uh, gossip boards had just been put up on online and... Um, we had never seen anything like that. You'd never, you know, you'd have a couple of friends come to the show and go, you know, they need to fix this, they need to fix that. And you knew who the source was. But we started reading this stuff and you didn't know who was posting it. It could have been a, a you know, a 14-year-old kid uh, who just saw his first show and he's like, well, I didn't like the costumes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so... We, you never know the source. That's the, the one of the frustrating things about um, uh, the online message boards. So that created a bit of a cancer in the show and ate away at the morale uh, of the cast uh, to the point where we all were like, listen, we can't read this anymore. We have to uh, b- buckle down and, 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 and work. Um, we uh, had producers that were panicking. Uh, because of the reviews, and they just started firing people left and right. The set designer was fired, and Tony Walton was brought in. The costume designer was fired, and William Ivy Long was brought in. Um, so we really were had head spinning. And by the time we got into New York, for, our director was fired, and they brought in Rob Marshall. So um, we didn't really have uh, – we were rudderless. Uh, really, and I tried to protect myself as much as possible and concentrate on the role and and I think I was uh for the most part successful and and was able to come out sort of without any stink on me <laughs> as it were but uh it was uh from eight to ten thirty it was a joy. everything else around it was was pretty maddening. Well, we've jumped right into the process of it, but it's worth noting that, of course, Stephen and Lynn had written My Favorite Year, in which you had a relatively small role. Had they always thought of you to be Horton, or was that something you still had to go out for? No, they were. They always had. They had written it with me in mind. I hmm. didn't even have to audition for it. Hmm. So it was. That's you know that's the 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 joy of of uh, working. So I mean, I've been working for twenty years now in the American theater and and. To have roles written for you is the biggest joy, I think, for an actor. Um, well, when they were writing it for you, did did you know they were doing that? Did you have any input into it at that point? Oh, yeah. yeah. You did? Right? Yeah, yeah. In the first readings, um, they you know they took all, all my suggestions, or most of them. Because uh, um, I was living inside the character, you know, uh-huh. and I was obsessed with the books for my whole life. And I knew them uh, inside and out. But uh, they were incredibly collaborative uh, during the reading and workshop process. So how did you see the character, and what kind of uh, dialogue did you have with, with, with Flaherty and Aaron's? Um, you know, there was little things like my character wouldn't say that, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, or my character wouldn't sing that. Uh-huh. Uh, an elephant wouldn't say that. Uh, <laughs> and we'd argue sometimes, and mm-hmm. sometimes they'd win, and sometimes I'd win, and um, just like in, in any regular play. Uh, I became obsessed with uh, Dr. Seuss's biography um, and um, the uh, the darkness in his life that surrounded all these wonderful light stories, and from a, a, a wife who committed suicide to uh, you know him actually being childless. He, he didn't have any kids, so I, I found that incredibly ironic. Of course, his widow Audrey was still 
still around. Was she involved at all in the development of the musical? Uh, she came um, to the opening night in Boston and was incredibly supportive. She loved it. Yeah, as did most of the audiences. You know, I, I think I think we got. Uh, I think everyone started panicking so early, but you know, you come to the the show even when you know, like Rosie O'Donnell came in and Kathy Rigby, and and this is why the show is is uh, the most produced musical now in America. It's a wonderful piece, and the people who actually came to see it had a great time. As I said before, we jumped very quickly from your shows at Lincoln Center right up to uh, Seussical, so I want to step back now. Um, your Broadway musical featured role debut was Triumph of Love, a musical version of the play by Marivaux, not your usual musical fodder. Can you tell us, uh, first of all, just a little bit about that show, which had, unfortunately, a relatively short run? Yeah, it, it, it's actually one of the... My my one of my favorite pieces. Uh, the score is is an amazing score by Susan Birkenhead and um, Jeffrey Stock, and um, book by Jim Magruder, who is actually a Marivaux scholar. Uh, and he he had uh, done a couple translations of Marivaux plays that Yale Rep was doing, and and everyone was doing Marivaux at the time. It was like the hot the hot playwright that everyone just rediscovered. And uh, it's one of those classic um, Commedia dell'arte tales with the Harlequin and the uh, the the body um, sex jokes and and the gardener that I played was uh, Dimas, who was the henchman. And uh, it starred F. Murray Abraham and Betty Buckley and Susan Egan, which are three incredible talents to work with. And um, I loved working, uh, watching uh, Murray work. I I just because uh, he was. Uh, he, he had never sung before on stage. And he, he had to really learn how to sing for this role, and he uh, it, it, it was it was so funny to see someone who I'd put up on a pedestal, being so self conscious about it, about his voice, who would come off stage afterwards and go, "How was that? Was that okay? Did I hit that <laughs> note?" <laughs> you know, and uh, it, it really actually was the first time that I felt um, okay. I I have enough training behind me that I can be an equal with an older actor who I've respected and whose work I've, you know, an Oscar winner, for God's mm -hmm. sake. And and then Betty Buckley, you know, who was uh, a force <laughs> on her own. Uh, uh, and it was, it was interesting to watch that, those personalities. Uh, and Michael Mayer, it was his first show. Uh, as, as, first as, Broadway as director. musical director. director. Yeah. And so dealing with all these huge personalities was... Uh, a real uh, Rubik's cube for him, because um, he and and Susan Egan, who was making her big, you know, after it was her her first big role after doing Belle in Beauty and the Beast, and she wanted to really show that she was an actress, and um, so there were there were a lot of egos involved, and um, so it, it made for very <laughs> colorful uh, rehearsal process. Uh, one of the best parts about it, though, was uh, my one of my closest friends, Roger Bart, who uh, we went to school together. We've known each other for 25 years. Um, he uh, played opposite me and, and my friend Nancy Opal, who was also a good friend. So how did you deal with all of this, all this going on around you? I sat excitement. in the corner and watched and <laughs> laughed <laughs> and was able to come out with a couple of really good stories that I can't mention on the air. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was really uh, uh, one of the – what was frustrating, too, was that, that um, again, it was one of those workshop processes where the workshop was – incredibly successful and then we started tinkering during previews and and too many cooks and um uh i think betty uh, betty wanted um there was a, a wonderful song that was written for her in the in the second act that's actually on the album as a bonus track but it actually ended up having to be cut because it didn't really propel the the plot but she didn't have a big second act number and so I did not I, – I can imagine that conversation of Michael Mayer having to go into her dressing room and say, your big second act number is is cut because you're actually a supporting cast member. You're not a a lead and it's not furthering the story. And it they, was, must have been incredibly tough for her. And they never considered writing a number that would work for her? It was too long. The show uh, was too I'm long as it were. But um, I, I think that one's ripe for a revival because it's a really wonderful score. 
it is that rare thing which was a very small classically based musical as you've already said on Broadway was there ultimately a disconnect between the demands of what people look for in a Broadway musical and the scale and and heart of that show uh, yes and no I, I think there's room on Broadway for small musicals um, uh, I think they're actually uh, pretty attractive for producers because it's a small cast and one one set and um, I think, sadly, audiences want to see their $100 worth. They want to see something fly. They want to see some scenery move. And we didn't really have any moving scenery. We had a just a couple hedges <laughs> that, that kind of slided in and out. But, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's sad. I think the audience is uh, creating a demand for um, – for uh, the, to see what what get their money money's worth, it's, it's sad. Unfortunately, this kind of is the age of the big spectacle on on Broadway, the big spectacular shows. Yes. Shortly after you did that, you went to an even more intimate musical off Broadway at the Drama Department as Thousands Cheer, which ran over the summer. It was just a summer production, as I recall. Tell tell us about that it, show. As Thousands Cheer was. Bar none, the perfect theatrical experience of my career. Why? Everyone was doing it for the love of it. Everyone was making $125 a week at drama department uh, in a little tiny space in the Greenwich House down in the village. And it made me realize after going through all these big Broadway flops what I got into the business for. Um. It made me realize that uh, art can prevail above commerce. And we had a very simple set. Uh, Chris Ashley uh, directed it, wonderful design. Um, and oh my God, I mean, that cast Howard McGillan, Judy Kuhn, B.D. Wong, Paula Newsom. It was a, a great group of people. And we got to bring back the art form of the review, which ironically, the next couple of years later, uh, Encores did. <clears throat> Ziegfeld Follies uh, of 1936, which I got to do, and then most recently Stairway to Paradise, which I got to do. I'm, I guess I'm the review guy now, <laughs> <laughs> but I got to do you know like Bert Lahr sketches and and uh, uh, stuff that I've always I've always been a big fan of vaudeville and the review form, and it's a lost art form. And uh, for the people who saw it, which were very few, because um, it's a 99 seat theater. Uh, it was a, a real step back in time. And what was also incredibly about, incredible about that experience was Kitty Carlisle, uh, may she rest in peace, was there protecting her husband's material. Moss Hart had, had written the book. And uh, she was so uh, excited to see this piece revive that she thought would never she would never see again in her lifetime. There's a great story. There was the, the song Easter Parade was originally in the uh, Thousands Cheer. And... Tommy Toon was doing a production of Easter Parade and had the rights to that song. And Kitty wanted um, Easter Parade in his thousandth year in our drama department. And so they had to uh, deal with all these lawyers and stuff. And Kitty was sick. And um, she was uh, very ill in bed. And um, uh, the lawyers were all surrounding her bed. And they were all talking about the song Easter Parade. And she said, you know what? If this prevents the show from being done then I I say forget about the song because I don't know if I'm going to live long enough to, to oh. see this show so um, do the show without Easter Parade <laughs> and and so we, we did and, uh, so you did it without without, without the song because they, they, at the time Tommy Toon on the rights mm. well in contrast to some of what we've talked about with workshops where it's about building up the new show here is a case of a virtually unseen show that you know, but certainly one that was established, you know, decades before. How much of that coming together was choosing what worked today and what worked for that cast? A lot. We actually did two workshops of of that, two readings, and uh, a lot of uh, <clears throat> references that people would not get. And you know, I think in the final production, we still had a lot of names and and. Um, because uh, it was, it had to do with with the celebrity, the show. So there were a lot of names that people didn't really get. But we were doing the show as a time capsule, as a museum piece. 
as well as creating a new production because the original production had over a hundred people in it, and we did it with six. So. Well, the the original production was basically a, a series of scenes based on newspaper headlines. Right. Some of them humorous, and some of them the weather heat wave came from that show, and. Uh, the, the the famous lynching, uh, the black man being lynched. Yeah, Supper Time. Supper yeah. Time came out of that show. So did you have to make a lot of adjustments because when it was written in the 30s, the, it was a totally different era. And here you were doing it you know, half a century later. Did you have to make a lot of adjustments just because things were so different? Um, no, we, 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 we wanted to create we, – we actually couldn't um, um, – make any changes to the scripts uh-huh. um but we wanted to be true to the material and present it the way it was presented back then and so some jokes went over everybody's head <laughs> you know we, we we were in the rehearsal period we were like what what is that joke reference it was like we had a glossary every time we uh, ran into something well, it's kind of like what they do at encores, where they revive a show and they keep it pretty much intact. Yeah, I mean, it's like when you go see Shakespeare, you don't get all the references, yeah. but but we do it the way it was done, uh, the same words that were spoken 400 years ago. And kind of like what you're doing out in Los Angeles, you're involved with uh, what's what's the the series out there? The uh, reprise, reprise, which is uh, the LA version of encores. And, and you're one of the co-artistic directors of that. I was this past season. Right. Um, uh, it uh, has now been taken over by Jason Alexander, um, so he's. Uh, created his own um, season this year. But I got to direct uh, Baby and uh, Working. I had an amazing cast for Baby. I had um, Faith Prince, Alice Ripley, and Carrie Butler. Uh, it was an amazing evening. Um, and Working was a blast. I, I'm, I'm still trying to get another production of Working up uh, here in New York. I, I think the, the score needs to be heard. And then I've done almost the entire Sondheim canon out there, Assassin's Company, Merrily Roll Along. Uh, it's 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 a wonderful organization. Now, was that your first directing experience? You direct I directed in college um, a lot. Was your first professional directing experience? Yeah, yeah. And I'm directing in June. I'm doing um, for NPR uh, the plays the thing. Uh, their their uh, play reading series for LA Theater Works. I'm doing uh, Noel Coward's Tonight at Eight Thirty, uh, and it'll be starring uh, John Michael Higgins from the uh, Christopher Guest movies and. Mm-hmm. So that should be a fun evening. And how do you find directing being on the other side of, uh, of of the table, so to speak? I find it incredibly easy. I love it. I, I really <laughs> do. I love working with actors. I love. I, it's my favorite part of the process is the rehearsal room. Um, uh, there's something actually. I, I I actually get a little sad after the first performance of a play because it's not ours anymore. Um, we have to. The audience is now telling us what to do as opposed to our own instincts and our own spontaneous, uh, organic mm-hmm. um, thoughts. So it's it's uh, it, it's it, it's it, quite a joy to be able to uh, sit back and watch something that you've uh, helped uh, create. As we wind our way through your career and before we get to Dirty Blonde, I want to ask you about two more workshops. We keep coming back to workshops. First... One that you have been quoted as describing as the moose murders of workshops, <laughs> namely muscle. Yeah. Tell people a little about muscle. Well, the reason I, I say it's the moose murders of workshops is because people say they saw it even if they didn't. <laughs> 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 and uh, for those of you who don't know, Moose Murders is an infamous play that ran one night on Broadway that everyone says, oh, I was there. I saw it. Um, Muscle was originally supposed to be written by Stephen Sondheim as part of a, a, the second act to Passion. And he abandoned that when he realized Passion was a, a full theater piece. And Bill Finn um, inherited it uh, with James Lapine writing the book and Ellen Fitzhugh writing the lyrics. And it was uh, based on a book by Sam Mus- Fussell, <laughs> rhymes with muscle, and about a guy who gets mugged. Uh, on the New York City streets and ends up uh, putting going, going to the gym and creating armor to protect himself and gets sucked down the rabbit hole of, of the bodybuilding world. It was a really interesting concept and a great score by Bill Finn. Um, I don't think... Uh, and James will probably say the same thing, that they, they kind of lost their way as to the the spine of the story because it's a pretty simple story 
And the book itself is a rather internal book. It's about this guy's journey of yeah. his own self-discovery through bodybuilding. Yeah. And and his uh, the dichotomy of him coming from an academic world and... Um, where and then getting sucked into this world that's all physical and and has nothing really to do with the brain. It's all the body. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's it's that's actually ripe for a another production too. I think that score should be saved and um, and reworked. I know James is still interested in doing it. That's and nice. and ironically, that show. See, it always leads to another another job. Is that I got to meet James Lapine, who really changed my career. Um, he uh, and I struck up a, a very, very good friendship, and and he saw potential in me, uh, and he wanted to create a theater piece for me. And at the time, he had commissioned Claudia Shear to write a piece about Mae West. And um, he had read an article in the New Yorker magazine, and he said, I want you to write it for you and Kevin. And Claudia and I had never even met. And so we met um, after she had written some monologues, and um, we started reading all these biographical monologues. She would read stuff uh, about Mae West, and I would read about a boxer friend of hers or a drag queen friend or her manager um, <clears throat> her father, and then we realized that there was this interesting rapport between Claudia and I, as just two contemporary New Yorkers. And as we were researching Mae West, we both sort of became a little obsessed. And and James was like, well, "What if this play was about obsession? And what if it was about two contemporary New Yorkers who meet at the archives, um, or meet at uh, her grave?" And their love affair starts over this obsession with a movie star. And so it was so organic the way this play started. It was really very piecemeal. Um, it was all these – you know, she had a – Claudia had a pile of, of, of writing uh, two inches thick that we just pieced through and said, oh, this would be interesting. This would be interesting. And so we went up to Martha's Vineyard to the Vineyard Playhouse and we ended up uh, putting together a, a hodgepodge evening brought on Bob Stillman to play piano and play a couple of the roles and uh, we created this odd little theater piece that Jerry Schoenfeld came up and said I love this I think you should bring it into New York and then a New York Theater Workshop came up as well and they did it there but we- as you were developing it when did the stories stop being about Claudia Shear's friends that she knew and start becoming partly Kevin Chamberlain it never really became friends that she knew. It, okay. it was never – it was okay. more – the original stuff that she wrote was – it was like Blown Sideways Through Life. It was her take, Claudia Shears' take on Mae West. And and she started writing originally about, about writing about the obsession of a movie star, of, of being obsessed with a movie star. She was like, oh, I, I can't believe I found out about – this part of Mae West's life, how does that relate to my life? Oh, isn't that interesting, the parallels? But you had said that, you you know, there would be something about a a boxer or something. When did your story become part of it? Because there were elements of your life that she incorporated. There were. There were. Um, It trickled in, you know. It trickled in um, here and there. We went out to dinner one night, got a little tipsy, and and I started talking about the fact that I was a, a New Jersey heavyweight champ wrestler. Uh, in high school, she's like, "Oh my God, that's fascinating! You don't seem like a wrestler at all. Mm-hmm. This would be great, you know." And the next day, I'd come in, and the rewrites. There it is. There's the uh, some biographical stuff. And the fact that both my parents uh, passed away uh, very young uh, is also in the play. And I, I don't know if we actually in this conversation mentioned that it's Dirty Blonde we're talking about. Uh, yes. we, we mentioned it much earlier, but I yes. just now we mentioned so Dirty Blonde. Which and there, was, and there was some great, the best part about Dirty Blonde was afterwards people would come back that had worked with Mae West. And the stories that they shared were just – I'll never forget them. My, one of my favorite ones is a, a, a guy that was a Mr. Universe, and he was one of her backup dancers in, in her Vegas nightclub act. And after the show – she would have a, a Mr. Universe on either arm escort her through the casino. And one day as she's walking through, 
one of the croupiers says, Hey, May, I'll lay you 10 to 1. And without missing a beat, she goes, It's an odd time, but I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> had, had you known much about May West before no, the show? No, all I knew was uh, come up and see me sometime. And <laughs> I think she did a Dannon yogurt commercial when I was a kid. I remember that. And I think I'd seen Myra Breckenridge and Sextet, her, her later films, which are just train wrecks. You know, but what a fascinating, fascinating life! And now I live right down the street from where she lived in L.A. Hmm. Uh, I always think of her when I drive by the building. Well, that last workshop I wanted to bring up was Wise Guys. Yeah, uh, um, yeah, that was that was a real uh, a th- thrill and and disappointing experience at once because you know it, as a musical theater actor. Um, you want to work with Steven Sondheim, and especially on a new show, and so that was a, a, a thrill. And, and although <laughs> the first time I sang, he had written a, a little ditty for me. It was um, a gold miner that's coming in singing about gold. And uh, after the rehearsal, he kind of came up to me and went, "I didn't understand one lyric," and I was like mortified for, for a week. <laughs> So from that day on, I was like over enunciating. Uh, but You're to, the I, best spoken prospector. In yes, town. yes. And I, but I got to work with Sam Mendes, uh, which ended up uh, being an incredible experience. He's an, an amazing director, and I think we ran out of time with that show. Um, I, it was by the time the first performance of it uh, was up, we'd only had the first act uh, written. And uh, I think uh, it got really panicky, and because uh, it's a great score. Uh, if people haven't listened to the score, it's now called Bounce. Um, uh, it has some really good, and I guess they're doing it at the public now uh, next year. So uh, it lives on. So we don't have to put that on your list of things that need to be rediscovered. No, it's, no, it's still in progress. It is still in progress, and actually, I'm I'm putting in my bid to. To play, I got to do it with Nathan Lane and Victor, and Victor Garber uh, originally, but I would love to take a stab at, at one of the Meisner brothers, uh, who it's about because it's a it's a great role. Well, you have a great role now in the Ritz, which is running at Studio Fifty Four. You're playing opposite uh, Rosie Perez and starring in that show, which runs through the middle of December. And of course, you're on NBC television in their show Heroes, big hit show. I just I, I got killed. <laughs> oh. I got killed, but it's out oh. on DVD. Well, now. you were, you were. Yes. What 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 does uh, the future look like, 2008 and onward? Um, well, I just did a show in Lifetime, uh, starring uh, with uh, starring Lily Taylor called State of Mind. Uh-huh. Uh, and so that's running on, on Lifetime now. And uh, uh, I'm going to hopefully be back on Broadway doing uh, Stairway to Paradise. Uh, they're talking about moving that uh, from Encores to, uh, I think they have the St. James Theater for next Terrific. summer. Yeah. So uh, barring uh, Kristen Chenoweth's uh, TV schedule and my schedule, uh, hopefully we'll be able to get that mounted. It was a wonderfully received uh, staging that, that Encores did. Really amazing. Jerry Zaks did a, an incredible job with that. Yes. Well, Kevin, thanks for being with us today on Downstage Center. We appreciate you coming in. I had a great time. I can't wait to listen to this in my car. <laughs> okay. and, and your Toyota Prius. Yes. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Kevin. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap. And thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.